I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to episode number 65 of the Scottish History Podcast. My name is Owen Innes and this week we are going to be talking about the forgotten UNESCO World Heritage Site of Scotland. Uh, not forgotten, not by you, but by me, because I'm an absolute idiot at times. So this week we are going to complete our UNESCO World Heritage Sites of Scotland series by talking about New Lanark. So in our last episode I did wrongly state that we had reached the end of our UNESCO journey. There is in fact one more location left and I am quite frankly embarrassed that I forgot all about it. So firstly apologies if I upset or offended anyone with that statement. So this week we will be talking about our last UNESCO World Heritage Site of Scotland and that as mentioned in the introduction, New Lanark. New Lanark in its heyday was an industrial village that was revolutionary in the way it was set up and the way in which it was run. It is situated around 1.4 miles or 2.2 kilometres away from the town of Lanark itself and around 25 miles or 40 kilometres outside of Glasgow. One of the main features of New Lanark is the River Clyde, the third longest river in Scotland, which is known for its industry such as, of course, the shipworks in Glasgow City itself. The river is really what made New Lanark work. New Lanark was founded in 1786 by David Dale, who was a Glasgow banker, philanthropist and entrepreneur. Dale was known for building cotton mills, uh, specifically in Blantyre and Catron, before embarking on the journey at New Lanark. Dale was in partnership with a politician called George Dempster and an inventor called Richard Arkwright, who at the time was one of the richest men in Britain. The first mill buildings that were built at New Lanark were based upon Arkwright's own mill buildings at his mill in Cromford in England, and all of the cotton spinning machines had been invented as well by Richard Arkwright. Once the mills had opened at New Lanark, Dempster and Arkwright left the partnership, leaving David Dale in sole control 
of the mills. Employment was helped by Arkwright, though, initially, by bringing spinners from his own mill again from Cromford to get the mills at Lanark started. In 1791, a ship called the Fortune was due to set sail from the Isle of Skye to North Carolina in the United States. Now, bear in mind, this time period was during the Highland Clearances, and in fact, Dale had also opened a mill up in Sutherland to give the Highland people employment and housing during the Highland Clearances. But anyway, the ship The Fortune was forced into Greenock due to bad weather. So Dale headed across to Greenock to the ship and managed to convince around 100 would-be emigrants to come and stay and work at New Lanark. By 1873, the workforce had grown to 1,157 people. Now, of which of those, 800 of them were children. Now, of course, you're immediately going to react and think, that's utterly terrible. However, David Dale had built very clean living quarters for all of his staff. The children themselves had six sleeping quarters and a maximum of three children would share a bed. The beds were made from wooden frames, had covers, sheets and pillows that were all changed once a month. The rooms were also cleaned thoroughly each day as well, being swept out, the windows opened and washed with boiling water along with sand. The working day, however, was a bit of a problem from the beginning. The working day was a long one. It started at 6am in the morning and finished at 7pm in the evening. The workers did have a half hour for breakfast and then an hour for dinner. However, the food that was on offer was of excellent standard for the day in which it was supplied. The breakfast consisted of an all-you-can-eat porridge buffet and the dinner was usually a broth soup with barley, good fresh beef, cheese and herring and potatoes when they were in season. All clothes for the workers were supplied by the mill, and again of good, comfortable quality. By 1796, Dale had established schooling for all of the children at the mill. The youngest attended during the day, and the older, working kids, had two hours of schooling at the end of their working day, where they would learn to read, write and do arithmetic. At that time, 16 teachers were employed just to teach the children. In 1799, Dale sold all his mills with a view to retire, and then he sold New Lanark to his son-in-law, a man called Robert Owen, for £60,000. Now, Owen was previously a successful mill manager in England before he even bought New Lanark. He had been the manager of a mill in Manchester before he'd even turned 20 years old. Now, Owen had met Caroline Dale, that being David Dale's daughter, and married her in 1799 and immediately set up a partnership to buy New Lanark from David Dale. The Owen family lived on site and it was he who really gets the recognition for turning New Lanark into this revolutionary place where it was revolutionary to live and to work. Owen described the work that he achieved at New Lanark as 
the most important experiment for the happiness of the human race that has yet been implemented in any part of the world. Owen began his tenure by introducing initiatives that we still see in businesses today, from report books to stock control to ensure that the business was running efficiently. Now, Owen was originally seen as being more strict than David Dale, as now employees could be fired for theft, absenteeism and even being drunk on the job. However strict he may have been, he was, however, fair. He did introduce a three-strike system known as the silent monitor, and it was colour-coded. So the colours were, first of all, you had white, which was excellent. You wanted to be in the white category. Yellow was your first strike, so that your work was good, but it could be improved or your behaviour was good, but again, still could be improved. You then had blue, which was your second strike. Your work was acceptable, but again, much more improvement needed to be done. And then you had black. That was your third strike. Any worse, and you would lose your job. Owen also reduced the working day to ten and a half hours a day. Now that would include your half an hour for your breakfast and your hour for lunch. He also abolished the use of orphans in the mill, instead setting up the world's first nursery for children. He also added to the village's mills by also adding a mechanics workshop as well as an iron foundry. Owen also helped to promote a community style of living in the village, Uh, but he did implement rules that everyone must have abided to, Uh, such as being sensible with your liquor. I think he didn't really like people drinking that much. All parents were now responsible for the actions of their children and that all persons over the age of 10 that were physically capable of working would be engaged in legal and useful employment. There were 12 neighbourhood divisions, each of which had a spokesperson who formed a council to discuss village matters directly with Robert Owen. Owen also employed a village doctor and he even employed a sickness fund that every employee paid one sixteenth of their wage into and then if an employee was too sick to come to work, they could withdraw funds to help them out. All of the villagers were also given allotments to grow their own fruit and vegetables if they wished to. Now, as mentioned before, Owen introduced education to the village and he really reformed the idea of how education should be treated. In 1816, Owen opened his Institute for the Formation of Character and in 1817 opened the School for Children. Owen believed that everyone should have education available to them. As soon as a child could walk, they were taken to the world's first nursery, which was run by two young female adults. This then allowed the mothers to return to work. Kids then, aged between three and six year old, attended the infant school, where they would learn to share and be nice to each other, something which I think three to six year olds need to be taught nowadays. At age seven, the children would then attend junior school where corporal punishment had been abolished by Robert Owen. Owen believed that schooling should be interesting and fun. So instead, he employed music and dancing, played a major role in the school, 
as well as learning about history, geography and art, as well as, of course, the standards of reading, writing and mathematics. Owen did, however, encourage parents to allow their children to attend school until they were 12 years old. However, all kids, as I mentioned before, that were over the age of 10 and were physically able to work as well, would work. So they would work and then for the last two hours of their day, they would go to school. In 1813, Owen opened the village store, which proved an instant success and is widely believed to have started the cooperative movement. The store sold fresh produce at affordable prices as well as other good quality goods, which really encouraged the workers to shop locally. All profits made by the store were then put back in and used to fund Owen's education reform plans. In 1825, Owen felt as though he should try and bring his so-called utopian ideas of living to the United States. Now, he sold the mill for £114,000, that's quite a profit he made on that, and he moved to the state of Indiana to set up a community there which was called New Harmony. Now, the New Harmony settlement ultimately did fail, however, it still does boast America's first ever free public school system, as well as the first free public library that both exist in New Harmony to this day. Owen moved back to Britain by 1828 after losing a vast amount of his fortune in the New Harmony settlement. And despite stating in 1817 that all religions were false, Owen converted to spiritualism in 1854 at the age of 83. He passed away on the 17th of November 1858 in Newtown in Wales where he was born. Heading back to New Lanark, the New Lanark mills were sold to Charles and Henry Walker and that was back in 1825. Charles and Henry Walker were the sons of one of Owen's original partners, John Walker. Things at New Lanark under the Walkers didn't change much, but they did receive a glowing review by the factory inspectorate in 1833. Now, the Walkers sort of got a bit fed up with New Lanark after a while and they tried to sell the mills in 1851, but were unsuccessful. They wouldn't be able to sell the mills until 1881, when they were bought out by the Burtmeyer and Somerville of the newly established Lanark Spinning Company, and they bought them out for £20,000. Henry Burtmeyer of Burtmeyer and Somerville really respected the principles and the values that New Lanark Village had set, and once again things continued without an awful lot of change. Burtmeyer did, however, upgrade some of the machinery on site, as well as the living quarters. Now, Bartmeyer was also attached to the Guruk Ropework Company, and rope making was then also introduced to the skill set at New Lanark. By around 1861, the number of people living at New Lanark Village had started to decrease, and slowly the homes started to feature more rooms instead of everyone just living in one room. Some of the walls were then knocked through to allow people a bigger home. In 1898, electricity was introduced to the buildings for the first time. This would be one dim-lit light bulb in each room, which, let's face it, was a start. 
But then people started tapping into the supply to instead power radios and electric irons. In 1955, New Lanark was finally connected to the national grid instead of that on-site powerhouse. Now, the on-site powerhouse did supply the village with free electricity. Um, However, the electric was switched off at 10pm each night, but at 11pm each night on a Saturday instead. Um, By 1933, indoor taps and sinks were then installed, uh, cold water only, of course, and the outdoor communal toilets were replaced by what are called stairhead kludges, or basically a stairwell toilet. So a toilet at the top of the stairwell rather than having to run outside. In 1963, a housing association was set up to refurbish some of the homes on site, but this all came to a halt when the Gurick Ropework Company announced the closure of the New Lanark Mills in 1968. By 1970, the site was sold to a scrap metal company who came to remove the aluminium away from the site. The population of the village at that time fell dramatically to around 80 people. In 1974, the New Lanark Conservation Trust was set up and directed by Jim Arnold, who still holds the directorship post to this day. And they set about restoring the village back to its original state. The original Mill 1 has now been fully restored and turned into the new Lanark Mill Hotel. Robert Owen's school is now the main museum building. There's also a youth hostel and many social and private housing on site as well. The population of New Lanark is today just over 200 and it has over 100 people employed at the site. Over half a million people visit New Lanark every single year and it was awarded with its UNESCO World Heritage status on the 14th of December 2001. Now it's been a long time since I myself have visited New Lanark and I do plan on going in the very near future. So when I do go I will take some photographs and I will upload them onto the social media websites. So that's it for another episode of this week. I don't know what I'm talking about next week. Uh, as I'm sure you're all aware, I've been kind of uh, once again missing for a couple of weeks. Again, just work. I had my brother's stag do last weekend. I've been recovering all week from that. So that's why it's taken a while to get uh, a new episode uploaded. So I'm working just basically around my own job at this moment in time. So hopefully I'm going to get back on top of things and get an episode out weekly. Um, However, if you could just bear with me while I get that done, I'm hugely, hugely grateful for your support. Uh, If you want to get in contact and let me know what kind of subjects you want to hear about next, you can do so via email. So you can send me an email on scotthistorypod at gmail.com. You can use the website as well. There's an online form on there. Go to scotthistorypod.com down at the bottom of the page send me an email on there a few blank ones have come through recently so if you have tried sending me a message and you think that i've not responded to it yet send me another one um, because it probably came through blank Um, but you can also get in touch with me on facebook instagram and twitter just search for scott history pod and you'll find me on there Once again, folks, thank you so very much for your support. And if you do wish to support the podcast uh, financially, it's grateful. It's not necessary, but if you wish to, you can do so via Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Scott History Pod. 
Once again, thank you so much for listening, and I'll speak to you again next time. <laughs>